Chapter 9 of Police Your Planet by Lester Del Rey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Contraband. Elections were over, but the few dim lights along the street showed only boarded up and darkened buildings. There were sounds of stirring, but no one was trusting that the election day brawls were completely ended yet. Gordon hesitated, then swung glumly toward a corner where he could find a police call box. He heard a tiny patrol car turn the corner and ducked back into another alley to wait for it to go by. But they weren't looking for him. Their spotlight caught a running boy, clutching a few thin copies of the Crusader under a scrawny arm. After the cops had dumped the unconscious kid into the back of the small squad car, and gone looking for more game. Gordon went over to look at the tattered scraps left of the opposition paper. Randolph wasn't preaching this time, but was content to report the facts he'd seen. There had been at least ninety known killings. Mobs had fought citizens outside the main market for three hours. Yet, in spite of all the ballot stuffing and intimidations, Wayne had barely squeaked through by a 4% majority. It was obvious that the current administration could never win another election. Bruce Gordon lifted the cradled phone from the box. Gordon reporting, he announced. A startled grunt came from the instrument, followed by the clicks of hasty switching. In less than 15 seconds, Trench's voice barked out of the phone. Gordon, where the hell you been? Up an alley between McCutcheon and Miles, Gordon told him, with a corpse. Murdoch's corpse. Better send out the wagon. Trench hesitated only a fraction of a second. Okay, I'll be out in ten minutes. Gordon clumped back to the alley and bent for a final inspection of Murdoch's body to make sure nothing would prove the flaws in his weakly built story. Isaiah Trench was better than his word. He swung his gray car up to the alley in seven minutes. The door slammed behind him. A beam snapped out from his flashlight into the alley, and then he was beside Murdoch's body. He threw the light to Gordon and stopped to run expert hands over the corpse and through the pockets. Finally, he stood up, frowning. He's dead, all right. I don't get it. If you hadn't reported in, Gordon, did he try to make you think he was security Gordon filled in? Yeah, claiming he was head of it here and wanted me to send a message to Earth for him. Trench nodded, a touch of relief on his face. Crazy. Gordon grimaced faintly. Crazy, Trench repeated. He must have been to spin that story. By the way, thanks for killing that sniper. You're a good shot. I'd be dead if you weren't, I guess. Gordon made no comment, and Trench said, I could start a nasty investigation, I guess. But I heard him raving, too. Give me a hand, and I'll take care of all this. Want me to drop you off? They wangled the body into the trunk of the car. Then it was good to relax while Trench drove along the rubble-piled and nearly deserted streets. 
Gordon heard a sigh from beside him. Trench must have been under tension, too. They didn't speak until Trench stopped in front of Mother Corey's place. Then the captain turned and stuck out his hand. Congratulations, by the way. I forgot to tell you, but you won the lottery. You are a sergeant from now on. Inside, a thick effluvium hit his nose, and Gordon turned to see Mother Corey's huge bulk waddling down the hall. The old man nodded. We thought you'd gone on the lamb, Cobber, but I guess since Trench brought you back, you've cooled. Good. Good. As a respectable man now, I couldn't have stashed you from the cops, though I might have been tempted. Mighty tempted. His face was melancholy. Tell me, lad, did they get Murdoch? Bruce Gordon nodded, and the old man sighed. Something suspiciously like a tear glistened in his eyes. I thought you were taking a bath, Gordon commented. The old man chuckled. Fate's against me, Cobber. With all the shooting, some punk put a bullet clean through the wall and the plastic of the tub, fifty gallons of water all wasted. He turned back toward the end of the hall, sighing again. Gordon went up the stairs, noticing that Izzy's door was open. The little man was stretched out on the bunk in his clothes, filthy, one side of his face swollen. Hi, Govna, he called out, his voice still cheerful. I had odds you'd beat the ticket, though the mother and me were worried there for a while. How'd you grease the fix? Gordon sketched it in without mentioning security. What happened to you, Izzy? Prize of being honest. But the geese who paid me protection didn't get hurt, Govna, he winced. Then grinned. So they pay me double tomorrow. Honesty pays, Govna, if you squeeze it once in a while. Funny you making sergeant. I thought two other geese won the lottery. So the promotion had come from Trench. It bothered him. When a turkey sees corn on the menu, it's time to wonder about Thanksgiving. Collections were good all week, probably as a result of Izzy's actions. Even after he arranged to pay his income tax and turned over his donation to the fund, Gordon was well ahead for the first time since he'd landed there. He had become almost superstitious about the way he was always left with no more than a hundred credits in his pockets. This time he stripped himself to that sum at once, depositing the rest in the first Marsport bank. Maybe it would break the jinx. They were one of the few teams in the 7th Precinct to make full quota. Trench was lavish in his praise. He was playing more than fair with Bruce Gordon now, but there was a basic suspicion in his eyes. The next day he drafted Izzy and Gordon for a trip outside the Dome. It's easy enough, and you'll get plenty of credit in the fund for it. I need two men who can keep their mouths shut. They aisled around the station through the morning. In the late afternoon, they left in a big truck, capable of hauling what would have been fifty tons of earth. Trench drove. Outside the dome, the electric motor carried them along at a steady twenty miles an hour, almost silently. It was Gordon's first look at the real Mars. He saw small villages where crop prospectors and hydroponic farmers lived. 
with a few small industrial sections scattered over the desert. As they moved out, he saw the slow change from the beaten appearance of Marsport to something that seemed no worse than what would be found among the sheer croppers back on Earth. It was obvious that Marsport was the poison center here. Some of the younger children were running around without helmets, confirming Prager's claim that third-generation Martians somehow learned to adapt to the atmosphere. Darkness fell sharply, as it always did in Mars' thin air, but they went on, heading out into the dunes of the desert. When they finally stopped, they were beside a small, battered spaceship. Boxes were piled all around it, and others were being tossed out. Trent leaped from the truck, motioning them to follow, and they began loading the crates hastily. It took about an hour of hard work to load the last of them, and Trent was working harder than they were. Finished, he went up to one of the men from the ship, handed over an envelope, and came back to start the truck back toward Marsport. As the dunes dwindled behind them, Gordon could see the brief flare of the little rocket taking off. They drove back through the night as rapidly as the truck could manage. Finally, they rolled into City Hall, down a ramp, and onto an elevator that took them three levels down. Trench climbed out and nodded in satisfaction. That's it. Take tomorrow off if you want, and I'll fix credits for you. But just remember, you haven't seen anything. You don't know any more than our old friend Murdoch. He led them to another elevator then swung back to the truck. Guns, Gordon said slowly. Guns and contraband ammunition for the administration from Earth. And they must have paid half the graft they've taken for that. What the hell do they want it for? Izzy jerked a shoulder upwards and a twist ran across his pockmarked face. War? What else, governor? Earth must be boiling about the election. Maybe security's getting set to spring. The idea of Marsport rebelling against Earth seemed ridiculous. Even with guns, they wouldn't have a chance if Earth sent a force of any strength to back security, but it was the only explanation. Gordon took the next day off to look for Sheila Corey, but nobody would admit having seen her. He had seen crowds beginning to assemble all afternoon but had paid no attention to them. Now he found the way back to Corey's blocked by a mob. Then he saw that the object of it all was the first Marsport bank. It was only toward that that the shaking fists were raised. Gordon managed to get onto a pile of rubble where he could see over the crowd. The doors of the bank were locked shut, but men were attacking it with an improvised battering ram. As he watched, a pompous little man came to the upper window over the door and began motioning for attention. The crowd quieted almost at once, except for a single yell. When do we get our money? Please, please, the voice reached back thinly as the bank president got his silence. Please, it won't do you any good, not a bit. We're broke, not a cent left. And don't go blaming me. I didn't start the rush. Your friends did that. They took all the money, and now we're cleaned out. You can't. A rope rose from the crowd and settled around him. In a second he was pulled down, 
and the crowd surged forward. Gordon dropped from the rubble, staring at the bank. He'd played it safe this time. He'd put his money away to make sure he'd have it. A heavy hand fell on his shoulder, and he turned to see Mother Corey. That's the way a panic is, Cobber, the man said. There's a run, then everything is ruined. I tried to get you when I first heard the rumor, but you were gone. And when this starts, a man has to get there first. He patted his side where a bald showed, and I just made it too. The mob was beginning to break up now, but it was still in an ugly mood. But what started it? Rumors that Mayor Wayne got a big loan from the bank. And why not? Seeing it was his bank, nobody had to guess that he'd never pay it back. So... Gordon found Izzy organizing the bouncers from the joints and some of the citizens into a squad. Every joint was closed down tightly already. Gordon began organizing his own squad. Izzy slipped over as he began to get them organized. If we hold past midnight, we'll be set, Governor, he said. They go crazy for a while, but give them a few hours and they'll stop most of it. I figure you know where all the scratch went. Sure. Guns from Earth. The damned fools. Yeah, but not fools. Just bloody well-informed, Governor. Earth sending a fleet. Got official word of it. No way of telling how big, but it's coming. It gave Gordon something to think about while they patrolled the beat. But he had had enough for a time without that. The mobs left the section alone apparently scared off by the organized group ready and waiting for them. But every street and alley had to be kept under constant surveillance to drive out the angry, desperate men who were trying to get something to hang on to before everything collapsed. He saw stores being broken into, beyond his beat, and brawls as one drunken, crazed crowd met another. But he kept to his own territory, knowing that there was nothing he could do beyond it. By midnight, as Izzy had promised, the people had begun to quiet down, however. The anger and hysteria were giving way to a sullen, beaten hopelessness. Honest Izzy finally seemed satisfied to turn things over to the regular nightmen. Gordon waited around a while longer, but finally headed back to Mother Corey's place. Mother Corey put a cup of steaming coffee into his hands. You look worse than I do, Cobber. Worse than even that granddaughter of mine. She was looking for you. Sheila? Gordon jerked the word out. Yeah, she left a note for you. I put it up in your room. Mother Corey chuckled. Why don't you two get married and make your fighting legal? Thanks for the coffee, Gordon threw back at him. He was already mounting the stairs. He tossed his door open and found the letter on his bed. I'd rather go to Wayne, it said, but I need money. If you want the rest of this, you've got until three tonight to make an offer. If you can find me, maybe I'll listen. The torn-off front cover of the notebook accompanied the letter, but it was a quarter after three already. He was practically broke, and he had no idea where she could be found. End of chapter 9